Well, good morning. You know, friendships are hard, and so we're starting this series. I wonder what you think of the C.S. Lewis observation. C.S. Lewis was that great Christian writer of the last century. He said, to the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life, the school of virtue. The modern world, in comparison, ignores it. What do you think? You think compared to ancient times, we're not quite as good as friendship at others? Probably have to ask an old person who lived in ancient times, like Mark Scheider, who's in the back, perhaps. That's not fair. Oh, that's not fair. There you go, Mark. How about that? Um, but it does seem like friendships are more difficult these days. Remember Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter? Steve Irwin said, crocodiles are easy. They try to kill and eat you. People are harder. Sometimes they pretend to be your friends first. It's true, friendships are hard. Some friends surprise us by the depth of their sacrifice that they will go to. Others by how quickly they may abandon us. Some friends last for a lifetime. Other friendships last as long as you don't disagree with their opinions. Last week, we began the series of messages on the art of friendship. Today, I want to share with you one of the classic friendships, one of the great friendships of all time, friendships of a couple of people we find in the Old Testament, Jonathan and David. Proverbs chapter 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times, a brother is born for a difficult time. That is Jonathan and David. As we study their story, as we talk about their relationship I want you to understand if you and I can find two or three friends in a lifetime, like David and Jonathan, we are rich. But the key is not to try to find somebody who will be a friend like this to us. The key is us learning to be friends like this. So let's take a look at their story, learn lessons along the way, and see what God has to teach us about our next steps. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are in this place. I thank you that as I share your word, it is your word. I thank you that as we listen and as to you, we are are experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit, and I pray that we would all be open to your work in our hearts and in our actions. Through Christ we pray, amen. I would encourage you to write down, I will out of this. What will you do as a result of what you hear today? The story of David and Jonathan is a bit unusual at the beginning because we would, we would not be surprised if they would not become friends since they have so much diversity. You know, they're from different places. David is from the rural Bethlehem. Jonathan grows up in Jerusalem, the capital city. David grows up smelling like sheep as a shepherd. Jonathan grows up smelling like the perfumes of the palace. David grows up fighting lions and bears. He gets his hands dirty. Jonathan grows up fighting his manicurists, who perhaps aren't doing a good enough job cleaning his fingernails. They're so different, city boy, country boy. So we wouldn't be surprised if they didn't develop friendships, except it is only shallow friendships that develop based on shallow things, like our shallow similarities. This friendship develops because they have some deep similarities. We're going to see that 
today. The friendship develops because Jonathan's dad is the king, King Saul, and from time to time a spirit will come over him and the Bible says, and, and, and bring on some deep depression. And David was not just a guitarist, they called it a liar back in those days, but he, his reputation has spread. So they discover that when a guitar is played well, that Saul is able to be calmed. They find out about David being this great guitar player, so David is brought into the palace to bring Saul relief. As a result of this, the two boys grow up in the palace together. What we see is that they share a spirit of conviction and courage and character that builds their relationship. Jonathan and David are both men's men. They are masculine. They are risk takers. They have a deep sense of ought, of justice. If they were kids today, they'd probably play rugby, you know, lacrosse. They'd be outdoorsmen. They'd be marksmen. They'd probably join the military. As a young man, you may have heard the story of David and Goliath. That tells us a lot about David's character. David's not old enough to be in the army yet, but the armies of Israel are facing their arch enemies, the pagan Philistines. And they're out in this countryside where there's a great ravine between them, but they can talk to each other. By the way, I would love for you to go to Israel with us sometimes. One of the things about going to Israel is you get to read Scripture while you're there, and it just brings the whole thing to life for you. And so David goes out, and he sees that Goliath is bearing down, calling out, trash-talking the people of Israel. The Bible says in 17 verse 3, 1 Samuel 17, the Philistines were standing on one hill, the Israelites were standing on the other, ravine is between them. Then the champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall, which immediately we know he must not be very spiritual if he's that tall. There are no spiritual people who are tall in the Bible. Only short people are spiritual in the Bible. Um, I like to tell myself that anyway. You know, they say that the greatest trash talkers in NBA history were Larry Bird and Michael Jordan. They had nothing compared to Goliath. No game. Listen to Goliath. He comes out and he says, choose one of your men to come out and to fight me. He says, if you kill me, we'll be your servants. But if we win against him and I kill him, then we'll You'll be our servants. You'll serve us. The Philistine then said this, verse 10, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send a man so we can fight each other. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. The trained soldiers of Israel were afraid. But not David. David's blood boils. He says, why didn't somebody... Do something about this guy. Who is this wild man to defy the name of the Lord our God? His courage and conviction actually embarrasses his brothers. They belittle him. Oh, you're just a kid. Go back and take care of the sheep. And he says, no, if nobody else is going to do anything about this, I will. And so they take him to King Saul. King Saul tries to talk him out of it. 
But he says, no. Saul's like, you're just a boy. David says, the Lord, verse 37, the Lord will rescue me from the paw of the lion, or has rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear when I was a shepherd. And he will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. The king says, okay. After some more conversation, David decides he's going to go into battle with no conventional weapons, no battle armor, no javelins or swords. He's just going to go in with his shepherd's sling and a few stones. Well, David goes out to the field of battle, and Goliath takes one look at this teenager, and he erupts. Am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. I assume that David probably has his shepherd's uh, rod with him. Maybe that's what he sees. I don't know. Come here, the Philistine called David, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. I don't think that Larry Bird ever said that on the basketball court. Verse 45, David shouts back. He gives it as well as he takes it. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. Today, I'll strike you down, remove your head, feed your corpse to the wild animals. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And the whole assembly will know it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. Talk about courage. Well, the giant moves toward David, and David moves toward Goliath, and he takes one rock, David does, and puts it in his sling and lets that thing fly and bullseye right between the eyes of Goliath. And as the kid's song goes, and the giant came a-tumbling down. Now today, if a baseball player hits a home run, to celebrate the home run, he may have this histrionic bat flip, you know, that he throws the bat up and lets everybody see I hit a home run. Well, in those days, their version of the bat flip was you defeat your enemy, you take the enemy's sword and you cut off his head and show everybody his head. And that's what David does. He goes over, cuts off Goliath's head, picks up the head to show everybody he's defeated the great Philistine. I wonder if he kind of wags it in his brother's directions. Hey, guys, who should go shepherd the sheep now kind of thing, you know? And then the next day he goes to school and uses it for show and tell probably. <laughs> What words would you use to describe David? Certainly we would say he's bold, risk-taking, courageous. But above all, he is a man of God, a lover of God, a man after God's own heart. And when we get to know Jonathan, we can see how David and Jonathan would bond because Jonathan shares that same character, that same love for God. In 1 Samuel 14, we see Jonathan has his own adventure with the Philistines. I picture Jonathan here. I'm glad we have like the Bourne identity movies. This is Jonathan as Jason Bourne. Imagine this, verse 6. Jonathan says to his armor bearer, basically, we have this secret mission. Let's go over to the garrison of those uncircumcised men, those pagans. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving us. 
whether by many or by few, bold. Verse 8, we'll cross over to the men, and if they say, wait until we reach you, we'll stay there for them, and then, but if they say, come on up, we'll go up, because the Lord has handed them over to us, that'll be our sign. So they get there, and the garrison calls Jonathan and his armor bearer and says, come on up, we'll teach you a lesson. Jonathan's like, okay, let's go. For the Lord has handed them over to Israel. Verse 13, Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet and his armor bearer behind him. Jonathan cut them down and his armor bearer followed and finished them off. In the first assault, Jonathan and his armor bearer struck down about 20 men in half acre, in half acre field, field, field and terror spread throughout the Philistine camp. Does that sound like David? Is it amazing what God can do through one person who has the courage and conviction to do what's right and trust that God will be with them? Can't you see how David and Jonathan would get along? Same character, same concern for the name of God, same sense of ought, sense of justice, same sense of responsibility. Somebody's got to do this, and if nobody else will, if, you know, I love this, teenagers, even if the adults won't do it, we'll, we'll do the right thing. We'll have courage. David and Jonathan meet in the palace. They don't have a whole lot in common. In fact, there's a lot that could have kept them separated. If their relationship had been built simply on their similarities, they would not have become friends because David is an arch rival for Jonathan. Jonathan is the king, is the Prince William of the day. You know, Jonathan is the next in line to the throne. David has already been anointed by, Saul, by, by Samuel, the prophet, to become the next king. It'd be easy for them to go separate directions, for Jonathan to be jealous and envious. But the relationship is built on something more than just shallow, surface, what do we have in common on the surface? It is built on commitment to Christ, devotion to God. C.S. Lewis one time said this about friendships. He said, the essence of friendship is a common quest, a shared vision, a unified mission. He said, friendships must be about something. Even if we're only enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice, that's classic Lewis. He says, the quest, uh, the common quest or vision unites friends. You'll not find a friend like you'll find the warrior or the poet or the Christian by staring him into his eyes as if he were your mistress. Better fight beside him, read with him, argue with him, pray with him. See, this is why needy people have a hard time making friends. Do you want to be friends? How do you feel when somebody comes around you and is like just desperately needy for a friend? Remember that, remember that old movie with Bill Murray, What About Bob? This is classic. What, how do you respond to friends who are like this? Watch this with me. Check it out. Look at I'm in really bad shape. Come on, please. Bob, please. Bob. Give me, give me, give me. I need, I Bob, need, Bob. I need, I need. Give me, give okay, me. Okay. Please. All right, all right, please. all right. Somebody comes to you with that kind of attitude. How do you respond? Oh, I want to be a friend like you. No, it's like you know, run away, run away, you know? And if, if you're getting into relationships with this deep sense of, 
I need you to fulfill me. I need you to make me happy. I'm lonely without you kind of thing. People are going to run away. You have to have something in common. And this is why the world has such shallow relationships. What we have in common is Jesus Christ. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. All these things, including friendships. Remember the Fellowship of the Ring, the Lord of the Rings? What is it that binds Boat, Frodo and Sam and Pippin together? It's not playing together on the playground. It's a purpose. We've got to save the Shire. We've got to destroy the ring. Every friendship needs a purpose, a Shire to save, a work to be done. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And together we're bound in him, in his purpose, looking at him and, being, and, and his kingdom. That's why we need to be involved in some kind of discipling relationships. In, in, in small groups, we're reading the Bible together, listening to God together, the, the, uh, trying to be obedient to the good shepherd together, making a difference, going and reaching a lost world together. It is as we work together in Jesus' mission that relationships are forged. Now, even the best of friends can get, friendships can get strained. 1 Samuel 18, 1 says that after David finished telling Saul about the events with Goliath, Jonathan was bound to David in a close relationship and loved him as much as he loved himself. It's a wonderful expression for friendship. You know how you're a friend of somebody else when you love them as much as you love yourself? Philippians chapter 2 says, in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, I hate to have to mention this, but we live in such a lost generation Tragically, there are some people that feel like you really can't love somebody unless you sexualize the relationship. That if you're not allowed to sexualize the relationship, it must not be a very loving relationship. And so there are people that project a sexualization onto this relationship. That because they loved each other more than themselves, oh, they must have sexualized the relationship. That says more about the perversion of the commentator than it does about the reality of David and Jonathan. You know, the Old Testament was really clear that homosexuality is sin, abomination for God. The culture back then in those days would not have accepted a homosexual relationship here. There's no evidence at all for that, except that people want to project that into the story, which is really profane. Um. I had a, heard a great line recently. You, you, can tell, you can tell how sacred something is by how violently the profane attack it. Verse 2 says that Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. And Jonathan removed his, the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow and his belt. This would be like the highest honor Jonathan could give David. 
Whenever David goes into battle now, he will go into battle dressed like a prince, like royalty. This is a way of Jonathan saying, David, I know you will be the next king. I won't be. There's no jealousy, no resentment. Jonathan is saying to David, I'm your biggest supporter. By contrast, his father Saul became jealous. By the way, Jonathan would pay a price for this. Jonathan would not become a national hero. David would. Jonathan would not be spoken of today. People don't quote Jonathan today. People quote David in the Psalms. You know, John, David would become known. King David is known throughout the world today. Rarely do people talk about Jonathan. But Jonathan said to God, your will be done. And he moved toward David. Let me ask, when relationships get challenging for you and sacrifice is demanded, do you move toward or do you move away? Columnist Ellen Goodman once wrote that we live as a nation of people who move away. Initially, we moved out west to the frontier. She said, now the frontier is within. And when life gets difficult and problems too hard to solve, we move away from parents, from spouse, from children, from friends, from church. I think COVID accelerated that moving away for some people. But the Bible tells us in Galatians chapter, two verse, chapter 6, verse 2, Carry one another's burdens, and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is the law of love. And how do we do that? By moving toward people, carrying their burdens. When you're tempted to move away, do you forgive? You don't quit. You rise above. You give another chance. You keep your commitments. You make adjustments. You carry the other person's burden, even though you have to sacrifice. Saul grows jealous of David. The troops come back from battle and people start singing David's praises. In 1 Samuel 18, 7, the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And Paul's, Saul is furious and resented this song. They credit tens of thousands to David, but only credit me with thousands. What more? will he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. Jealousy has been called mental cancer, the jaundice of the soul. And what we're going to watch in Saul is that jaundice destroys his soul. The next day, the evil spirit, verse 10 says, sent from God, came powerfully on Saul. He began to rave inside. David began to play again, but this time, rather than bringing Saul comfort, it made him more angry. He raged. Saul was holding his spear, and he threw it at once, thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. But David got away from him twice. All of a sudden, he's playing yard darts, and David is the target. Verse 12 says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. What a contrast between Jonathan and David, Jonathan and Saul. Jonathan says to God, your will be done. Saul says to God, my will be done, not your will. I want my way. Jonathan, we admire, becomes a man of character. Saul's soul is crushed. Saul gets so desperate 
he sends David out into one battle after another to get killed. <laughs> but it says David led the troops and he continued to be successful in all his activities because the Lord was with him. And Saul observed that David was very successful and he dreaded him, but all Israel loved, all Israel and Judah loved David. You can't thwart God. Psalm 2 gets political. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers conspire together against the Lord and His anointed one. But the enthroned in heaven, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. In other words, why is it that presidents and premiers and dictators and congressmen and parliaments fight against God? Why is it that they don't say, they don't say, thy will be done. They say, we can't believe the Bible. We're going to reject God's morality. Evil is good. Good is evil. The church is bad. Christians should, we should be fear, afraid of them, feared of them, afraid of them. And heaven laughs. Saul tries to fight God, and it's a losing battle. But rather than humbling himself, by the way, do you hear what I'm saying? Don't get caught up because the nations rage against God. The nations will lose. Heaven laughs. But Saul keeps fighting God. Jonathan defends David to Saul. Chapter 19, verse 4, he spoke well of David to his father. Why would you want to sin against innocent blood by killing David, he says? Verse 6, Saul listened to Jonathan's advice and swore an oath, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. So Jonathan summoned David and told him all these words, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and they served, and he served him again as before. What a wonderful lesson, again, about faithful friendship. Faithful friends speak well of you behind your back. Faithful friends defend you when you're not around. It was difficult for Jonathan to take this risk. His dad was an angry man and the most powerful man. Probably Israel at this point is the most powerful nation in the ancient Near East. You know what would have been a whole lot easier for Jonathan just not to say anything? What would you have done? You know what would have been easy for Jonathan? What a lot of people do today? Just to symp be sympathetic. Oh, man, I can understand your concern. I understand your emotions and why you feel like David's a threat to you. Oh, I understand how you're going through this anxiety with David. But Jonathan has courage to define, to understand right and wrong, and to say to his dad, what you are doing is wrong. I don't understand. It's not understandable. It's sin. Why would you sin against David? Listen, godly friends speak up for their friends behind their back. They don't just try to say what the other person wants to hear. How about you? 
I read recently of a rabbi who lectures on the power of words. Often he challenges audience, can you go 24 hours without saying an unkind word about somebody else or to somebody else? So I would ask you, how many of you will go, make a commitment, go 24 hours without saying an unkind word about or to someone else? Okay, good for you. That's about, he says his response is to, very few people will raise their hands. A lot of people will laugh. He says sometimes people will just just say out loud, no. And then he gives this challenge. Those of you who can't answer yes must recognize you have a serious problem. If you can't go 24 hours without alcohol, you have an alcohol problem. If you can't go 24 hours without smoking, you have a nicotine addiction. If you can't go 24 hours without saying something negative about somebody else, you've got a problem controlling your tongue, your language. I can't go 24 hours without talking about baseball. I think I have a problem, it occurs to me. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29 says, no foul language should come out of your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. Jonathan is a faithful friend because he speaks up for his friend behind his back. If your friend does not speak up for you behind your back, if your friend is sympathetic for those who are speaking harshly of you behind your back, He is not your friend. He's not faithful anyway. Well, Saul for a while gives some peace, but then he turns on David again. I heard that somebody described one time as a a man was not so much a human as a civil war. That's Saul. Saul's a civil war inside because he's at war with God. One night, Saul sends assassins to kill David. David barely escapes. He comes to Jonathan the next day and says, Jonathan, what's the deal? I thought your dad wasn't going to kill me. And Jonathan's incredulous. My dad's not going to kill you. He wouldn't do anything without letting me know. And David's like, yeah, he would. He tried to kill me. Jonathan's incredulous. By the way, we're not going to take time for this. Maybe I'll do it in devotion this week. But again, One sign of godly friends is they tell you the truth even when it's unpleasant. Proverbs 27, verse 5, better is an open reprimand than concealed love. The wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. I got to admit, I probably have a, I go to the wrong extreme in this. I don't like it when people give profuse kisses because they want other people to feel good about them. You know, and so I can probably be too blunt sometimes. But better is an open reprimand than concealed love. If you have somebody who loves you well enough to reprimand you, you listen. Well, Jonathan says to David, okay, I'll do whatever you want. David says, here's the plan. Tomorrow begins the new moon festivals. Your dad has invited me. He expects me to be around the table. I'm not going to be there. Tell him I've asked to be able to celebrate this feast with my parents, with my family in Bethlehem. So he goes and, 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 and he says, by, and, and, and if your dad responds and he's not, it's not a big deal, we know your dad's not going to try to kill me. But if your dad gets angry, we know it's trouble. And Jonathan asks David to make him a promise. Verse 14, he says, when you become king, if I continue to live, show me kindness from the Lord. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household. 
if you know anything about history, you know whenever there's a new king, the new king usually eliminates all potential um, rivals, the, the former family. Jonathan says, will you protect my family? So they make a covenant together. Um, Jonathan says, okay, and here's the plan. And they go through this plan of how he will let David know how his dad responds. Chapter 20, verse 30 says, um, actually, when, when, chapter 20, the new moon festival comes. David doesn't show up the first day. Saul's fine. Second day, David doesn't show up for the meal. Saul says, where is David, the son of Jesse? Well, he asked, Jonathan says, he asked permission to go celebrate with his family. Then Saul became angry with Jonathan and shouted, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. That's about as close as we get in the Bible. You know, he's questioning, when somebody's questioning your mother's integrity, you know you're in trouble. Don't I know that you are siding with Jesse's son to your own shame and to the disgrace of your mother? Every day Jesse's son lives on earth, you and your kingship are not secure. Now send for him and bring him to me. He must die. Jonathan answered his father back, why must he be killed? What has he done? And Saul threw a spear at Jonathan to kill him. So he knew his father was determined to kill David. Huh. Missed the hint. Didn't miss the hint there. I mean, at any rate. Message paraphrase says that Jonathan stormed from the temple, furiously angry, ate nothing the rest of the day, upset for David and smarting under the humiliation from his father. How embarrassed he is with his father's activity. The next day, Jonathan informs David what's happened. And for the next 15 years, basically, David runs kind of the band on the run. He gathers around him a group of ruffians who will be his bodyguards, his army, his secret service. Again, I'd love for you to go to Israel with us so you can see the terrain there of the Judean countryside where he would have been hiding. The day arrives that Jonathan finds out where David is hiding and he goes and he joins him for one final time. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a difficult time. That's Jonathan. 1 Samuel 23, verse 16, records their final meeting. Saul's son, Jonathan, came to David and encouraged him in his faith in God, saying, don't be afraid, for my father Saul will never lay a hand on you. You yourself will be king over Israel, and I'll be second in command. Even my father Saul knows it's true. Then the two of them made a covenant in the Lord's presence. Afterward, David remained in Horish while Jonathan went home. You know, one of the things about great friends is that they don't have to be around each other all the time and you may not talk for years, but when you start to talk again, you just kind of pick up where you left off. One final lesson I want you to learn from this is that godly friends keep their commitments. Sometime later, as recorded at the end of 1 Samuel, Jonathan and Saul are killed on the same day of battle. Word gets back to David, he grieves. There's a, a fight for the throne. David eventually is recognized as king. And then David remembers his commitment to his old friend Jonathan. And he orders an all-out search for Jonathan's surviving family. Verse 1 of 2 Samuel 9, David asks, Is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's 
sake. Nobody's holding me accountable for this. They look and they find one son, Mephibosheth. Could I have the hands of everybody named Mephibosheth here today? What a great name, I think, that Mephibosheth. Part of the reason that Mephibosheth survived is because he can't walk. When he was five years old, he was being carried by a nurse, and she fell and crushed his legs and feet, and now he's unable to walk. Verse 11 says, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. His feet had been injured. David essentially adopts Mephibosheth, treats him as his own son, even though it's not convenient, even though it's a sacrifice. Good friends will keep their promises to you. Good friend says, I'll look after your kids. Looks after your kids. I'll take care of the situation. I take care of it. I will pay you back. I pay you back. I'll pray for you every day. Praise for you every day. I promise for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. Keeps her promises. Hey, I won't let you die alone. And she keeps the promise. Psalm 15, verse 1 asks the question Who can be close to God? Verse 4 says, The one who keeps his word, whatever the cost, even though it hurts. And isn't that why we need Jesus as our faithful friend? The Bible tells us that there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The Bible, Jesus tells us that greater love is no one than this, than he would lay down his life for a friend. The story of Jonathan and David is a wonderful story, but its, but its power is in how it teaches us about the friendship of Jesus with us. See, we are like Mephibosheth. All we have to offer God is a broken body and a broken life. But Jesus is like a good shepherd. Even though we've gone astray, he searches. Is there anybody that I can go and bless because of my grace? And he finds us. He's not coming to the world to condemn the world, but to save us. And he promises to lead us and to provide for us and to guide us down right paths, to make us one of his own. And he would rather die than break his promise to us. And the Bible says, but to all who receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. How can anybody say no to that kind of friend? What we really need today is not just Jonathan and David friends. More than anything, we need to accept Jesus' invitation who invites us to be part of his family and to put our feet under his table and to provide for us and to lead us. Is it any wonder that people... Christian people for years have sung that song, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. Is Jesus your friend today that you are walking with? I sure hope so. If not, would you accept him before you leave this place? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ and for his friendship, his faithfulness to us. I pray for those who right now are on a, it, this is a life-changing moment when they've come to understand the truth of who Jesus is.
our need for that friend who sticks closer than a brother, that friend who loves us with the greatest love and dies for us. I pray for each of those in this place. To say, Jesus, be my Savior and Lord. Through Christ we pray these things. Amen.